Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. It's good afternoon to Neil Mitchell and this is 3CR. It's coming up to 4 o'clock and it's Jan Bartlett with you and I'll be here till 6 o'clock tonight. Today, a visit to Palestine by Prince William and Trump's Deal of the Century. We're speaking with Professor Basim Daly, who's their Vice President of the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network. Election results for Colombia in South America with Professor Emeritus James Petrus. A lot of professors today. Militarisation of the world with journalist and researcher Nick McClellan and another election result in Mexico over the weekend. Professor Emeritus Barry Carr, but let's first hear it from Professor Kevin Healy. A week, Jane, listener, when last week we left this World Cup privatised state-of-the-art telecoverage, hoping its efficiency didn't destroy competition policy or our faith in privatisation, as we left the up-to-us-you-suckers Big Supremo describing as its non-coverage as an excellent product, while announcing SBS would now show all games for at least the next week or so. And by week's end, it announced SBS would now show all matches, period due to the excellent products still trying to sort out the glitches, leaving us also to ponder how the bloated, inefficient public free-to-air channel could show every game, while the super-efficient private sector opera-us-you-suckers still had its technicians scratching their heads looking at the excellent product on the blank screens, along with those who'd forked out their hard-earned. And following another item from last week, one notion supremo that appalling Hoonsun's consistent inconsistency, that appalling clarified our confusion. No flip-flop! Of course not. She she just said uh, yes and then said no and then yes and then no and then no flip-flop! And she's correct. Her inconsistency is consistent. Years after a former spook revealed Trubler was he was illegally bugging the Timor-Leste cabinet room and related meetings during diplomatic and commercial negotiations to assist great responsible corporate Wood Steelside getting its hands on Timor-Leste's oil and gas by making it Trubler was the oil and gas, the government took strong action. Punished those responsible for diplomatic crime? Well, not quite. It charged the spook and his lawyer for the heinous crime of exposing its crime, its illegality. And asked about this, the Attorney General Christian Love Thy Neighbour Porter said he could not comment on matters of justice independent of government. Right. And also harking back, we finished last week attempting to work out how a 26% increase on super fund insurance guaranteeing less money in retirement could be, as the insurance industry said, a good thing making the system fairer. Well, no, I still haven't worked it out, listener, and if you did, let me know. But I think I may have found the answer in yesterday's True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review. It's those little intricacies in the greatest little economic order of them all that we just can't comprehend, but which its practitioners, like the insurance industry, grasp. See, 
P1 main headline, No RBA Rate Hikes for a Year, predicting it would be at least mid-2019 before the Reserve Bank raised the interest rate. Then turn the page, P3. Big four banks to lift mortgage rates. Again, a mystery to an economic ignoramus like me. I won't insult you by including you in my ignorance, and you may well understand why interest rates must go up, because interest rates are not going up. But obviously, like the insurance industry, the big four banks do understand. Well, for a start, we can rule greed out. Taking an uneducated stab, maybe those massive legal bills mounting as they are forced to defend their business motors operando down at the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Commission need to be paid, and we can't expect the banks to pay them. But look, no, we won't be cruel to the banks. They are the very heart of the greatest little economic order of them all. And the last thing we need in this society is class warfare when the omniscient practitioners of the greatest little know there is no such thing. And if it wasn't for evil unions and out-of-control socialists like Comrade Shorten Ambition and Swanning with Bosses, there wouldn't be. Well, there wouldn't be rubbishy claims that what doesn't exist does exist when we know it doesn't exist. Because again, yesterday's True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review, P1 again, shorten ambition, swanning with bosses, sharpen class warfare attacks. And today, swanning with bosses pay claims, populist nonsense. And a very, very disturbing editorial at the back of the book, swanning with bosses' agenda will push Labor to far-left fringes. What a terrifying thought. Because the Capitalist Review hates those who raise the chimera of class warfare. And Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo, Comrade Little Billy Short, ambition sharpened class warfare attack. He told a Socialist Party conference he would, wait for it, sit down, this is economic vandalism, restore penalty rates for the lowest of low paid whose second annual cut in wages came in on Sunday. And new Socialist Party President Comrade Wayne Swamming with bosses, populist nonsense. He said corporate CEOs were overpaid, gorging themselves on excessive salaries he lashed out. And if that isn't class warfare, what is? Thankfully, both ludicrous claims were refuted by those who know. The lovest of low paid accepting the need to slash their wages, I hear. Well, the nearest thing to it, their caring employers, the sundry retail chambers of profits, clarifying the need to slash the lowest of wages so they, the caring employers, can go on doing that to which they devote their lives, creating employment for the lazy, avaricious ingrates. And yet... There were people like Comrade Short and Ambition who spat out even more ludicrous nonsense like comparing slashing penalty rates in the same week as attempting to slash taxes on the filthy rich. As if there's some connection. And other critics, not Comrade Short and Ambition in this case, also tried to compare slashing the lowest of low paid wages on the same day that a parliamentary pay rise came into effect giving them thousands more. And who rebuffed Comrade Swanning with claims as populist nonsense? No less than the CEOs themselves, the sundry chambers of profits. And they'd know if they were being overpaid, were gorging themselves on excessive salaries, and they know they're not. And that push to far-left fringes editorial nailed Comrade Swanning with's problem.
It seems a vested interest is any wealthy individual or company that disagrees with his jaundiced view of the world. And the clincher came from the CEOs themselves and the totally independent of those people, the editorialists. Income inequality has barely increased since the 1990s, they point out. Look, the gap has barely increased. The filthy rich are still filthy rich, and the poorest of poor are still poorest of poor. And there's no need for the poorest of poor to hear this class warfare populist nonsense. End of story. What more proof do we need that so-called class warfare is no more than a socialist myth? Of course, Comrade Little Billy's been in trouble all week, not just for promising to restore penalty rates, but for threatening to rescind tax cuts for large numbers of the filthy rich. Confected class warfare run riot, which forced even members of his own party to criticise his socialist run riot and extract a retraction, ensuring the filthy rich do get their much-deserved tax cuts. And the filthy rich and big supremo Malcolm and the team said Little Billy's threat was a tax increase for the filthy rich because they would be paying exactly the same as they pay now. No, I don't follow that either, but they know. Well, let's clarify that. Not paying tax at the same rate as they now, not paying tax. Showing how shameful is Little Billy's attack on those who generate wealth and jobs. Jobs and growth. Jobs and growth. Meanwhile, down the radio dial at Triple M for triple for triple macho, triple and more men, real men, the real men showed why they are real men by having a great time laughing their way through aspects of childbirth, which is generally restricted to women. The fun, fun, fun led by a true man, Barry hauled the bodies in after he showed what a real tough man he was on the footy field by KOing opponents when the ball was at the other end of the ground and his opponents weren't quite quite expecting to be knocked cold, although being on Barry they should have expected it, so it was their own fault, really. And Barry has formed this fun, fun, fun radio segment, a new organisation called Terrific Humour Undermining Gynaecology, known as FUG. Although Barry assured us what he said wasn't the real him. Must have been a radio him or a ventriloquist or something. They all say that. It wasn't the real me. Eddie Maguire, you so poor, does it every time he drops a sexist or racist or homophobic or whatever comment. It's never him, not the real him. And this US of telly woman, Rosie something, said her racial attacks, including the N-word, had nothing to do with her. They were to do with some medication or other. Blame the pharmacist. And she even resorted to the Holocaust defence. It hurts as a Jew that people I hurt attack me as if that has anything to do with it. And more excitement. And finally, an application to join Thug from Libertarian Senator David Lying Helm. Uh, sorry, it's not lying, it's lion, lion, a real man, a lion at the helm. Oh, sorry, David, uh, where would I have got lying from? Anyway, Barry and the fun team at Triple Macho, uh, Triple M, would have a hilarious time with David, and David can tell them about this bloody Greens person whom he put in her place when she complained about domestic violence. And we all know where a woman's place is. <laughs> They'll fall about at their own humour, showing women like the Green Senator just don't have a sense of humour, or worse, don't know where a woman's place is. Good afternoon. 
And good afternoon to Mr. Kevin Healy. You're listening to Melbourne's Community Radio Station 3CR. It's 11 minutes past 4 o'clock. Do you want to learn new skills and open new career opportunities? AIMS Australia is a leading education provider offering government-funded courses in general English, aged care and work skills. Courses start in July, so call 13 26 37 now to sign up today or go to ames.net.au for more information. AIMS Australia is a registered training organisation, TOID 0590. AIMS Australia is a 3CR supporter. And at just on 12 minutes past four, I'm going to give you the five ways that you can listen to 3CR. You can listen to 8.55 on your radio dial for your old radio. If you've got a digital phone, digital radio, it's 3CR digital. If you go to the web, 3cr.org.au, there's live streaming, and that means that you can hear this program as it's going to air. That's 3cr.org.au slash streaming. And there's also audio on demand, which means that you can listen to this same program, as with all the programs, on 3CR for one week. And then once that week is up, the new program comes and that plays for a week. And the last one is a podcast at 3cr.org.au slash your program page. And that will take you into the podcast and work you through how to have it put through onto your computer. So there are five ways that you can listen to Melbourne's best community radio station. Uh, hi, my name's Sarah. I love coming here because they offer vegan food. Hi, my name's Paul. I, this is my first time at Friends of the Earth. I think it's really awesome and the food's great and really healthy and nutritious. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op, 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. A tuneful experience. A 3CR supporter. The second stage of the Colombian elections were held on the 17th of June with right-wing candidate Ivan Duque winning by a relatively small majority from former guerrilla leader Gustavo Petro. For an analysis of the results and what this means for the future for Colombia, I spoke with Professor Emeritus James Petrus. First, James, difficult to speak about Colombia without acknowledging the six or more decade guerrilla war which ended recently, although some remnants of the guerrilla are still active. What is different with this election is that there was a candidate from the left, Petro, Would you agree that the main reason for the long guerrilla war was that in all that time in Colombia there was no space in the political system for those on the left, trade unionists, indigenous, working class, peasants, etc.? Yes, I think the uh, oligarchy has uh, dominated Colombian politics. The abstention rate normally is about 70%. And if you count people that even don't even register for vote, it might even be higher. That's their safe way of refuting the idea that this is a democracy. And the uh, level of violence, especially against uh, peasants, 
has been incredible, but also unionists, especially in the uh, plantations. Now the uh, run-up to the elections was the uh, significant factor was the Plan Columbia, which began with uh, uh, President Clinton, and uh, they poured over a billion dollars into uh, Colombia and doubled their military to over 400,000. And uh, with the election of uh, selections, better said, of Alvaro Uribe, who was a notorious uh, narco-paramilitary president, uh, the uh, uprooting of uh, s- several hundred thousand peasants in the countryside, in a sense, uh, was designed to weaken the guerrillas because their base was in the countryside. And that uh, was uh, a significant factor in uh, forcing the uh, so-called peace negotiations, which uh, essentially was a uh, product of the uh, death squads and uh, the paramilitary and military attacks that took place in the countryside. What has the U.S. got out of that over the years, their interference in Colombia? Well, they are in the Ministry of Defense uh, designing the uh, counterinsurgency strategies. The U.S. has seven military bases in uh, Colombia, and uh, they're involved in all the uh, counterinsurgency activity out in the field with trainers and uh, advisors. So it's a country that was heavily influenced, perhaps the most uh, U.S.-influenced and controlled military forces in South America. I won't include uh, Central American countries like Guatemala and Honduras, where the U.S. practically runs the uh, the armed forces. So I think this is a big factor that's been overlooked in the discussion of the elections. The elections are a culmination of all of this activity that started in 2001 when the uh, U.S. undermined the peace negotiations along with the uh, president of uh, Colombia at the time. And uh, this uh, was the launch pad for the uh, military uh, extermination campaign of 2001 to 2010. But why Colombia? Why not some other country in South America? Well, it's it's the third biggest country in South America. It's uh, got uh, oil. It has uh, a lot of agriculture. It has uh, manufacturing markets. It's a significant player in the whole Caribbean areas. It's probably the most decisive after uh, Venezuela. But it has a uh, significantly uh, important population and plays a very active role both in the Caribbean and in the Andean countries. It adjoins Ecuador and it joins down toward Brazil. What's been the role of Israel over those years? Well, Israel has uh, been advising uh, these uh, counterinsurgency operations throughout Latin America. They were very active in Argentina in the run-up to the uh, military coup of 1976. They were instrumental in uh, Guatemala 
in directing the counterinsurgency that uh, uh, affected, the, it really decimated the Indian uh, insurgency there. And uh, it is always involved in some way or another in advising, directing, and uh, supplying uh, operatives in uh, Latin America. But the countries I know best is that they've been involved in Guatemala uh, and Colombia and earlier in Argentina. How important has Colombia been to destabilizing Venezuela? Well, it has been a launch pad for many of the terrorist groups that have been uh, infiltrating the uh, a country and blowing up the power systems and, and causing havoc in the economy. They have uh, attacked the agrarian reform recipients and have been a constant uh, pressure on the uh, border areas, particularly between uh, Venezuela and Colombia. They have not engaged in any major cross-border uh, operations in the sense of military operations, but they certainly have been a launch pad for terrorists that have uh, been recruited in Venezuela. So they cross-border. It's a sanctuary for the terrorists operating in Venezuela. Well, from what you've just said in the last couple of minutes, can you explain how the ex-guerrilla gained 42% of the vote? Well, the guerrillas have been, uh, over the last 10 years, they've been isolated from uh, some of their major areas of operations. And uh, as I mentioned, the uh, U.S. has isolated their capacity to mobilize the peasants. Many of the peasants were forced out of the countryside into the cities, and uh, that was the principal basis of the guerrillas. And I think they they uh, were not able to become an, a significant electoral force. Uh, most of the people that were around the FARC and the ELM, when they decided to vote, voted for the center-left government of uh, Petro. And they made some impact, but surprisingly uh, less impact in the countryside, or not surprisingly, because that's where the uh, right wing uses its muscle to intimidate peasants. And so the big vote for the left was in Bogota and to a lesser degree some of the other cities. You've mentioned Irube a couple of times. He's still there in the background, isn't he? Uribe runs the, the election, uh, the recent election. The candidate was a front person. Uh, he has no organization, no party. Uh, no financing. So uh, he ran as a, a new voice, a new face, a young, younger face, but essentially he's taken over Uribe's agenda. He's pro-business, pro-large uh, landowners, pro-U.S. Uh, They've already announced that they're going to join NATO. They question the peace agreement, uh, and it looks likely that they will jail or uh, I, I kicked the uh, FARC out of their uh, seats in Congress. So I think Uribe is the brains behind the face of uh, President-elected uh, Duque. If they try and jail the former guerrilla leaders, is that going to lead to war again? 
Well, it is already. Many of the uh, uh, insurgents have uh, been threatened, their families. Some of them have, about 50 have been assassinated. So the choice for many of the guerrillas is to go back to the jungles and join the section of the FARC that never accepted the peace agreement. But they're very reduced in size, uh, and they are in pretty isolated uh, jungle mountainous areas. So I, I think they will have a long road to hoe. It's a large, uh, long march, you might say, to a, a re reconstructing any kind of uh, popular insurgency. Uh, it's very difficult to imagine uh, anything of significance emerging in the uh, in the short run. And some of the guerrillas uh, have been incorporated in some kind of uh, NGO-funded uh, agricultural activities in the countryside. So the uh, guerrillas are, are divided between those that will be in jail, those that are trying to survive, uh, those that have gone up to the uh, mountains again, and uh, some of the others that probably are leaving the country and heading for Venezuela. And, of course, there's more than one guerrilla movement. You're talking yes, the, <clears throat> the significant one is the National Liberation Army, ELN. There is a very small group called the EPL, but it doesn't count for more than uh, a minimum number of members. And so it's a question if, if, if individuals are the, uh, leaving the cities, that they'll join the remnants of the FARC or join up with the ELN or perhaps unify the two groups. Is the peace accord completely dead? Well, it depends on who you talk to. Some people think that the uh, FARC remnants will not try to organize a uh, independent party. I, I think most of the uh, FARC sympathizers, if not their members, will look towards some rapprochement with the Petro people and, uh, and, and join the uh, parliamentary groups, perhaps re retaining a certain degree of independence. But I think they uh, probably will look toward uh, joining and trying to create a greater degree of political space for the mass movements through uh, cooperation with the uh, Petro uh, supporters. Did that peace accord talk about reparation for the victims of that long war? Oh, there's talk about it, but the, the main emphasis on compensation for what they call the victims of the guerrillas in the course of the Civil War, the uh, conflict uh, overflowed into the uh, countryside and some of the uh, landowners and others were kidnapped. Some of them were killed. And so the main emphasis of compensation is on what they call the victims of the guerrillas. So they, they say they will uh, compensate victims on both sides, but I think overwhelmingly the compensations will be what they call the guerrilla victims. One area you haven't touched on is drugs, the, the drug wars, the drug cartels. How important has that well, been? The biggest drug deal, the biggest... Uh, point in the drug deals are the U.S. bankers who uh, launder hundreds of millions of dollars each year. And uh, I'm talking about Bank of America, Wells Fargo, Citibank, 
it's notorious how much uh, money is laundered in U.S. and in uh, British uh, City of London banks. So that, that's the first thing that one has to take into account. The uh, fraction, about 5% of the uh, earnings from drug sales uh, accrue to the peasants and the drug uh, operators who have been working with Uribe and other well-known and respected businessmen and landowners are the uh, second factor. The guerrillas mainly have been uh, c collecting attacks by protecting the peasant farmers of uh, coca, and uh, they are not involved in uh, uh, fabricating the uh, dope or uh, transporting it, but they are, the, uh, so to speak, the, uh, the guards of the peasants so that they uh, earn their, uh, they get the money that they uh, earned from growing it. So the growing part is where the uh, FARC was involved. There are individual FARC members who were involved in the, uh, the sale of drugs, and uh, that has been noted. But the main uh, drug dealers were in the government itself and in the military of Colombia, and they will continue. Recently, I, I read an article where uh, $7 million in uh, coca uh, was, uh, cocaine was transferred into uh, towards Spain from Colombia. And where does that cocaine go to? Well, it goes to the United States. It goes to uh, Europe. And uh, it has become a, uh, a drug of choice for the uh, middle and upper, upper classes. Wall Street is flooded with coca snorkers. It's a good way to put it, isn't it? That's Professor Emeritus James Petrus speaking from Bingingham in New York. And on the program next week, Jones will be talking about U.S. interference in Nicaragua at the moment. We'll find out what they're behind and why they're doing it. It's now just coming up to 4.30 on 3CR. In the truth is... The Smith Street Dreaming Festival is coming soon. Smith Street Dreaming has become one of the area's most anticipated street festivals. This year, we're featuring Dave Arden and Band, Alice Skye... Benny Walker, Birds, the Jury Jury Dance Group and Indigenous Hip Hop Projects with MC Layla Guruwiri from the Mangrook Footy Show and much more. Smith Street Dreaming, corner of Smith Street and Stanley Streets, Collingwood. Saturday, July the 22nd, 1pm to 5 o'clock. Smith Street Dreaming, one street, many mobs, one community. Smith Street Dreaming is a drug and alcohol free event and a 3CR supporter. I'm speaking now with Professor Bassam Daly, who's the Vice President of APAN, Australian Palestine Advocacy Network. Bassam, talk briefly about the visit to Palestine and Israel by Prince William. I know you don't want to waste too much time on him, but why do you believe he was sent to talk to the Palestinian Authority, visit a school, a refugee camp, etc.? 
and he uttered the words, you have not been forgotten. What's it all about? Yeah, I was wondering myself uh, what the objective of the trip is. Obviously, these trips don't just happen. I think uh, it's maybe the Europeans or the UK's way of saying to Israel that we're not happy with your plans to annex Jerusalem to Israel. It's also perhaps a message to the Netanyahu government that, you know, your actions and the snubbing of uh, the word will is not going unnoticed. I think um, it, it does have a symbolism in it, in, in that uh, he called East Jerusalem occupied. He went to occupy East Jerusalem. He did meet with uh, Mahmoud Abbas. And he also met with youngsters or teenagers from the West Bank as well as from the Gaza Strip. And the reports show that actually, uh, at least state that he changed a little bit of his uh, speech, including this line that you mentioned, that he might have been forgotten, perhaps because he was affected by what he heard uh, during that day from uh, the different Palestinian youth who sort of were uh, expressing, uh, I guess, frustration about the lack of progress and about uh, their uh, hopes and aspiration for a better life. So... Um, I do believe that uh, uh, this uh, had a political edge to it rather than just a visit. How did he manage to speak with children from Gaza? I can't remember the number, but uh, they were uh, brought from Gaza to East Jerusalem, I understand, for him to meet with them. Uh, and I thought uh, that's another good sign in, uh, in showing that Gaza hasn't been forgotten. Uh, and that, uh, you know, I presume the Europeans uh, do care about the plight of the Palestinians and what's happening in there. I think all in all this is more sort of symbolism than any uh, political pressure, but nonetheless it's the first time that the royal family is actually taking interest and it seems that it's been urged by the political leaders to do so. Well, there's not many people get out of that concentration camp, are there? So I'm just wondering where the pressure came for those children to be brought to Ramallah? I presume they, if you want the star power of um, for the royal family and uh, the supposed backlash if, if they weren't allowed uh, to leave uh, would have you know, negative consequences uh, on the visit in, in Israel in particular so they allowed a few teenagers to, cost to come to Ramallah I'm sure they did them uh, very um, thoroughly before they allowed him to cross. But um, it's not unheard of, by the way. Uh, Israel sometimes allow uh, people to travel to Jordan via Israel from, from uh, the Gaza Strip to go overseas. And often uh, now they open the Rafah crossing, but uh, only for short periods of time. But obviously they didn't want William to go to Gaza himself. No, of course not. I think that would draw too much attention to what's happening in there. But uh, I think uh, a big thing now uh, happening soon, uh, I believe, uh, there is uh, three boats uh, heading uh, towards Gaza to break the siege. This flotilla has people from uh, Europe and from Canada, I understand. And so Gaza will be in the news uh, soon, I'd like to believe. Are they on the open sea already? They are, apparently. They have been... Uh, going from uh, one port to another in the Mediterranean. Uh, they started in Scandinavia, and then uh, I understand there's an Australian on board as well who's going to uh, try and report what's happening there. Next, Bassam, Trump's deal of the century, and one quote, 
is there no humiliation left for the Palestinians after Oslo, after the two-state solution, after years of Israeli occupation of Area A and, and C to define what kind of occupation the Palestinians must live under, after the vast Jewish colonisation of land thieved from its owners, after the mass killings of Gaza and Trump's decision about Jerusalem, all of Jerusalem, must be the capital of Israel, are the Palestinians going to be asked to settle for cash and a miserable village? Is there no shame left? What is the deal? The deal supposedly is, is nothing new, is that uh, the Netanyahu government has been calling what we call economic peace. In other words, they're going to buy the way through the occupation and urge the world community to support uh, some sort of um, economic development for the Palestinians in return for them to give, uh, give up their rights as such. Palestinians don't that give up their rights uh, just because, um, you know, a few factors were opened here and there. Palestinians' uh, struggle is for freedom and self-determination. The bottom line is the economic peace is not going to be agreed on by the Palestinians, and uh, the Trump administration know that. So analysts believe that uh, the whole sort of deal, I guess, is something to trap the Palestinian Authority once again by coming and putting on the table a solution that uh, they know the Palestinians are going to reject. The solution will have a little bit of Israel to do, but since the Palestinians are going to reject it, then Israel will have the right to reject it as well, and basically cement the status quo, blame the Palestinians for their own uh, misery. What uh, Daniel Pipes, uh, you know, the right-wing uh, extremist columnist from the U.S., says, uh, finish him off, in a way, in other words... Um, Let's basically ignore the Palestinians and their will. They don't want peace. They're happy with occupation. Let's just have, uh, entrench the apartheid system in place and let's take everything over. Now, the Israel obviously has been doing this since 1993 uh, and even well before, of course, the colonization started in 67. The Palestinians will basically will be uh, almost impotent to do anything about it. Uh, I believe this uh, so-called deal of the century is no more or no less other than a trap for the Palestinians and a collusion. Uh, now, at least, it's public between the U.S. and Israel on trying to basically finish the Palestinian issue altogether. They, uh, I think, will be disastrous if anybody actually entertain any such economic peace. By the way, as part of the plan, reportedly, the Gaza Strip, uh, people will be allowed to uh, venture into northern Sinai, where a uh, economic hub uh, funded by the Gulf states will be will exist in there. So basically, they'll have enough to eat, no real freedom. Apparently, they want to subcontract the occupation to Egypt, so Egyptian forces will be in, in Gaza. That's what's been reported. Uh, Israel wants to confiscate most of the Jordan uh, uh, Valley, and Jordan Valley is really the food basket of, uh, of the West Bank. Israel is going to basically encircle all the major cities or the Palestinian population in there and take control of everything else in between. They're going to confiscate all of Jerusalem. So basically, an apartheid system, uh, no more, no less, that they want the Palestinians to subscribe to. It's clear that Palestinians are not going to do that. The future doesn't look uh, that rosy. Uh, I think the struggle continues. And the one thing that really surprised me, John, is that uh, Palestinians I talk to, they are all optimistic. I'm optimistic about not that, uh, you know, uh, things are, are good. In fact, it couldn't be any worse. 
but that uh, they say we're not going anywhere. The Palestinian struggle will continue until we get our rights, and that what we see now is almost a frustration of Israel that it could not implement its plans of making the Palestinians disappear as such. Especially that uh, last month when there's the 70th anniversary of the Nakba, and the, uh, the uh, citizen survey shows that uh, there is almost uh, 30,000 uh, people difference uh, between the Palestinians and the uh, Israelis, uh, Israeli Jews for that matter, in historical Palestine. So there's equal number of Arabs and Jews in historical Palestine today. And hence, uh, you know, you could imagine that in the near future, the minority are be controlling the majority. And uh, that's no more and no less than apartheid because the majority of those Palestinians can't vote and uh, hence they're living under you know, military occupation. And that we are hoping uh, that uh, the, that community will not tolerate anymore. The future looks a little bit uh, bleak, but somehow uh, interesting uh, in terms of development. You mentioned just before when you were talking about, William, that the European countries were showing some displeasure about the, the situation of the Palestinians. What would be their reaction if something like this happened? It is happening in a way. I mean, I, I gave a talk lately where I actually articulated uh, a lot of, um, uh, or quoted a lot of Israeli leaders who were saying, uh, one of them, for example, Ehud Barak, he used to be the uh, Prime Minister of Israel and uh, the highest decorated soldier in Israel, and he says, that if west of the Jordan River there's only one entity called Israel and those millions of Palestinians cannot vote, it will be an apartheid, which is exactly what's happening today. I think these latest movements are just sharpening things and focusing them to an extent that nobody can pretend anymore that Israel wants peace, that all this lip service to the two-state solution has basically disappeared and then you'll be mad now to think that Israel wants to you know, relinquish any territory for the, to the Palestinians other than sort of an autonomy type thing. I think uh, uh, what the Europeans need to do is to basically act in, in that accordance, and that's why we're trying very hard to actually uh, describe what's happening in there as really apartheid. And I think the major players, uh, it seems, uh, beyond the Europeans, are that the Chinese uh, uh, and Asians, they do exert uh, some uh, what's called soft pressure in yeah, they do have some political power to pull as well, including Russia, by the way. But uh, it is always going to be uh, the uh, international community uh, who is going to help uh, resolve this rather than leaving it to the Palestinians to struggle under uh, this occupation. They face Israel and the, the its U.S. Uh, ally. I'm just wondering what Egypt will get out of this because I'd imagine it's not going to be a, a very happy place if they manage somehow to get the Palestinians into the northern Sinai will be a very disruptive place for Egypt. Egypt uh, is not coming to this uh, really in its own accord. Egypt uh, is the second largest recipient of uh, U.S. funds uh, in the world after Israel, uh, anyway between 3 and $4 billion a year. And most of it goes to, to the army and so on. Obviously, uh, Abdel Fattah Sisi, the current president, uh, used to head the army. He's the one who sort of then uh, is doing uh, the U.S. bidding in uh, in Egypt. Uh, they, they, I'm sure they're not going to suggest this without consultation with Sisi. And if the Egyptian uh, government being pushed to do that, uh, then uh, I presume they will do it. The, the other worrying part is mostly um, the Gulf states uh, and Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates who 
uh, are also lining up to sort of fund some of this uh, development, hoping that this will resolve the issue in a way and want uh, instead of focusing on Palestine, which is still sort of um, a conflict that won't go away, and focus on Iran and Iran expansion. Uh, I think um, it's all personal interest. It's all uh, pressure from the outside. And um, uh, I think uh, many presidents and uh, in Egypt and the U.S. came and go, but uh, the, and uh, who tried to somehow sell the Palestinian cause uh, have not succeeded. I think the Palestinians will have, will hold the steadfast continue the resistance until they get their rights. I think um, it will be a tragedy that anyone would actually agree to any of these deals that we're talking about. And how much of a role do you believe the the US Christian Zionists have had in this plan? It's an interesting question. Now, as, as we, we all know, uh, is not a, um, uh, an evangelical sort of Christian, while his uh, vice president is, by the way. Now, this is the base that helped him uh, be elected in order. He had support from uh, Sheldon Adelson, who is a, a Jewish billionaire in the U.S., and who apparently, were the things that he's doing now, has promised Adelson in return for his financial support. Kushner, by the way, is a very close uh, family uh, friend to uh, Netanyahu. So there's... Um, I see it more of uh, personal family connections uh, supported by some uh, radical elements in the U.S., mainly the uh, Zionist lobby in the U.S., uh, including the Christian Zionists. Then actually um, sort of a smart uh, U.S. policy which has uh, long-term implications or, or any sort of debt in a this has been stitched uh, well before the election, and I think um, Israel thought it can uh, accelerate what it's doing um, under this administration because it has been somehow sort of, um, you know, told off before with other administrations. From the Palestinian perspective, by the way, this is this perhaps better than before. In other words, if uh, Hillary Clinton was uh, was to be elected, uh, maybe there would have been a status quo. In other words, let's uh, let's pretend that we are going for peace and uh, uh, and let's continue building settlements and put realities on the ground until eventually, sort of, there's nothing to negotiate on. At least uh, the Trump administration and the current Israeli government are not shying away from declaring their intentions in a way. No one knows uh, how, how long this will continue and if it will have uh, any major consequences for the future. But uh, one thing is certainly clear is that the Palestinians will not give up just because um, there's this president to that president. Uh, it's their rights and, and uh, it, it is their right to resist until they get it. And what you've been saying over the last minutes is well known to the Palestinians both in the West Bank and in Gaza. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, I've seen lots of uh, reports in uh, in the Arabic in the newspapers uh, and websites uh, in Palestine and the Arab world. I think um, uh, the reports is that the uh, representatives of the Arab governments are urging Trump and Kushner not to release the plan because they already could see the uh, response in the streets to it. Uh, almost everyone is aware of um, what the plan is likely to contain, and it's always already rejected it as such. 
and hence uh, I think the um, the Arab leaders don't uh, don't want this to sort of disturb the peace, if you want, because they know that uh, it will only be seen as a sellout, and if they want to stand behind it, then their people are not going to like it at all, and hence uh, that's why uh, I think they're urging the Trump administration not to release it. So it has been now at least a couple of months where oh, it's going to be released this week, it's going to be released next week, and then and then nothing was released. And uh, I imagine uh, this is mostly why this is the case. Ramallah, have um, support groups, advocacy groups for Palestinians here in Australia contacted the Australian government to get their opinion on what this praying might mean? We have uh, formally and informally. We've been to Canberra a couple of weeks ago, and we uh, have met with representatives, and they warned about uh, the uh, eventuality of the release of, uh, of this uh, uh, proposal, and they have damaging it will be to the cause of peace in the Middle East, and warned that uh, the Australian government should not uh, entertain anything that... Uh, contradicts uh, international law and that uh, uh, they should take to their policy of, of establishing two states, uh, give the Palestinians the recognition they deserve as, as an independent people rather than agree to uh, or line up behind a proposal that will establish a new day apartheid. We also expressed to the governments our dissatisfaction and disgust, uh, I would say, about their position on on the investigation of the uh, killings uh, at the uh, separation fence between Gaza and Israel in the last uh, two to three months, where Australia voted uh, against a probe uh, into into these incidents, while 120 other countries voted for it. Um, Australia's excuse is quite uh, weak, and it just shows that uh, the trying to appease the uh, Zionist lobby in Australia rather than uh, be the honest brokers that they promised to be when they joined the Human Rights Council. Yes, it makes a mockery of their participation in the UN Human Rights Council, doesn't it? Absolutely it does. I think their excuses uh, that the outcome must be predetermined and so on is ridiculous. What's wrong with the investigation by the UN? What's wrong with... And, and the UN was going to look at both sides and look at uh, the Palestinian side as well as the Israeli side. But I think uh, uh, the pressure from uh, from the lobby in here know what the outcome is going to be. The outcome is that uh, Israeli snipers sat on this hill in there and uh, shot dead 136 Palestinians and injured more than 7,000 unarmed Palestinians and injured more than 7,000, and then uh, yet, apparently, according to our government, there's no need to investigate that. Perhaps the Palestinians who were killed, including the kids and the medical the medical staff and, and the doctors and so on, are all to blame for their own death. And this is ridiculous. It's not backable by any sort of decent, uh, uh, fair-minded person, and uh, the government should be ashamed of its position. I just wonder what's happened to all those people who were wounded during those weeks, many of them shot in the feet, shot in the legs. The dearth of medical supplies there to treat thousands and thousands of people who have inhaled gas and been shot. In uh, normal days, uh, Palestinians struggled to uh, find enough medications to keep uh, patients alive and, and treat them, let alone when there is uh, mass casualties like this. The electricity supply is intermittent and only 
you know, goes for four four hours a day here and there. Uh, the water is uh, 98% of the water in Gaza is undrinkable because of uh, sea water seeping into the aquifer because of the overconsumption. Israel controls uh, or counts every calorie that goes through the borders, so, so people have just enough calories not to starve. I mean, it is a cruel, cruel situation in there, and nobody should be surprised that the Palestinians uh, in Gaza are protesting their jailers and protesting their conditions, uh, especially that uh, the average age in, in the Gaza Strip is 17, and the unemployment is 45%. I mean, there's 1.8 million people in there, and they live in a 360 square kilometers. So these conditions are absolutely untenable. The UN says that by 2020, Gaza will be uninhabitable. That's only two years from now. I mean, there's no wonder people are protesting. Once something changed in a way, and the, the Israel and the U.S. And the, and the rest of the community know that, the uh, question is what political moves they're going to do to ease what's happening in the and to um, try and give people um, a better life in a way, other than sort of selling their land for them. In the near future, uh, American lawyer, Palestinian-American lawyer, will be here in Australia. Can yeah. you tell us about her? Yes, uh, Nora Irakat uh, is, uh, is based in Washington, and uh, she's going to be in Australia from the 14th to the 19th of uh, July. She's going to be speaking in Adelaide, delivering the Edward Said Memorial Lecture, as well as at the Sydney University and in Melbourne. She has a different perspective on, uh, on Gaza and on uh, what's happening in Palestine. She's a brilliant speaker and has been uh, on many uh, news networks from CBNC to the BBC to CNN and Washington Post and so on. She's, uh, she's certainly worth uh, looking for, for a really deeper analysis, understanding uh, what's happening now and what's happening in the future in a way, at least according to her. I think she, her talk in Melbourne is going to focus on what happens after Trump. So for, for details, uh, people can go to the APAN website or Facebook and, uh, and all the details are there. Thank you, Basim. Thanks, John. Much appreciated. And that's Professor Basim Daly speaking to me from Adelaide yesterday. And just a bit more information about Noira Erekat. She's a, a legal scholar a human rights attorney in Washington. Her talk will be Palestine Human Rights in the Age of Trump. It's being delivered at the State Library, the Village Roadside Roadshow Theatre. It's in Latrobe Street. On the 19th of June, between 7 and 8pm, bookings are essential, so I'd advise to... Get onto the APAN webpage, it's Australian Palestine Advocacy Network, and book your tickets to here, Nora. And the other thing that Bassam announced was that ship's flotilla is once again on its way to Gaza. And I have transcript from Elizabeth Murray, who's part of Voices for Creative Nonviolence, who was on one of the ship's early in June, and just read a a little bit of what she said. Aboard the International Solidarity Boat Al-Alwada, part of the Freedom Fertilla Coalition, we are a most motley crew than the passengers aboard the Minnow in the old US TV series Macau's Navy.
Among those who have joined us on one or more legs of the visit to Gaza are citizens of Spain, Israel, Norway, Malaysia, Canada, Indigenous, Denmark and United States. Despite our diverse ages and backgrounds, we have something important in common. Minds that comprehend that the crimes and human rights violations being committed daily against the people of the Israeli-occupied Palestinian territories. Hearts that feel deeply the pain of those whose basic freedoms have been denied for 70 years. And consciences that want to find a non-violent way to reach out to these people, right the wrongs of the Gaza blockade and achieve a measure of justice. The legitimate political representatives of our governments have failed us in having the political and moral courage to secure peace and justice for a people facing 70 years of sustained, brutal political and economic subjugation by a foreign power, Israel. Thus we act. The International Freedom Flotilla Coalition sails again. This time the FFC will not attempt to deliver medical supplies or foodstuffs to the suffering people of Gaza. Past experience with previous missions indicate that such materials are never likely to end there in Gaza or will arrive in spoilt or damaged condition. Instead, the Al-Wada will deliver itself, a refurbished Norwegian fishing boat as a solidarity offering to the fishermen of Gaza who are shot at and harassed on a daily basis, preventing from feeding their families and whose fishing boats are regularly seized and destroyed by Israel. So that's coming up very soon, the flotilla, and we'll be hearing more about that, I'd imagine, on the program next week. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Fight for your mic. Want to support 3CR's diverse and independent voices? Well, it's not too late and we still need your support. Donate now by calling 9419 or donate online at www.3cr.org.au or post us a cheque or money order to Post Office Box 1277, Collingwood 3066. Fight for your life. Twenty eighteen marks twenty years since senior traditional owner Yvonne Margarula invited supporters to come to Mirar Country within Kakadu National Park to blockade the proposed Jabaluka uranium mine. Thousands answered the call. The mine was stopped. To commemorate this extraordinary anniversary, Conjate Aboriginal Corporation and the Australian Conservation Foundation have produced a gorgeous commemorative calendar. Standing strong, Jabaluka twenty years is a piece of history you don't want to miss. Order your copy today at mirar.net. That's M-I-R-A-R-R dot net. A 3CR supporter. 
And on Tuesday Home Time, it's welcome to journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. Militarisation of the Pacific area, Nick, we've had the recent cancellation, we're told, of the exercises between South Korea and the US near the coast of North Korea, but there's far more to it than that, isn't there? Right across the Pacific region, there's a series of annual and biannual military exercises and they're designed to practice scenarios for war fighting. They're designed particularly to build what, what the military jargon is, interoperability, that the military forces of two countries can work together, can operate together. And that's at practical levels, setting up communication systems, tactics, uh, where, for example, Australian Royal Australian Navy warships might join a US Naval Task Force. Can we get our tactics in place? Can we get our communications in place? Do our computer systems mesh? And all those sorts of questions. So there's an awful lot of war gaming going on where the United States and its various allies in the Pacific region practice war fighting scenarios, practice working with other partners, and often showing the flag I'm sending political and diplomatic messages, um, so it's not purely a military matter, but often ho- the hosting of war games is sending signals, threatening or supporting to uh, uh, people that want, they want to send a message to. So the decision by the Trump administration to cancel regular war games that are held between the South Korean armed forces and the US military is significant. It's a diplomatic signal to North Korea. It's also a diplomatic signal to South Korea where the Trump administration, with its, some of its isolationist policies, is pressuring the South Koreans to pay more for the basing of US troops in Korea. It's part of a, a wider trade dispute between South Korea and the United States, um, with the um, uh, Trump administration trying to pressure the current uh, Moon administration in South Korea, which is a sort of social democratic, vaguely progressive uh, administration. What are these other exercises? Where are they? The Pacific's a big area. They don't run into each other, do they? No, but they try and bring them together. And one of the biggest is the RIMPAC naval exercise and uh, other armed forces. Um, every couple of years, RIMPAC is the rim of the Pacific exercise. It's a major operation. It started off in the early days in Hawaii. The United States used to invite ANZUS, Australia, New Zealand, and, uh, and a couple of other navies to come and practice, do target practice. The US used to have a naval bombardment site on the island of Kahualawe, and literally the ships used to use the island as target practice. Uh, this caused enormous resistance during the 1970s from the Hawaiian sovereignty movement, and Kanaka Maoli activists, indigenous Hawaiian activists, used to swim out or canoe out and occupy the island to stop RIMPAC bombarding Kahualawe during these, uh, these exercises. And uh, Australia and then Canada agreed not to use it for gunfire practice. It took a decade of struggle and in the death of uh, one young Kanakamali activist to stop the US using it. And now Kahualawe has been turned into a nature preserve. And so uh, RIMPAC has grown, however, and expanded as more and more Western countries uh, were brought in to RIMPAC and RIMPAC spread across vast areas of the Pacific, not just using the area around Hawaii, with, of course, the major uh, 7th Fleet naval base at Pearl Harbor, but spreading right across the Pacific, right across Micronesia, towards Guam and other places, and indeed even spreading part of it down south towards Australia, um, off the coast of Queensland. And so you had these massive 
operations um, involving the ANZUS allies uh, and uh, France and other players with uh, sort of scenarios that involve tensions near the Philippines, near Australia and near Hawaii and seeing how naval forces could cooperate, for example, tracking submarines, uh, blowing up the supposed enemy and so on. They're not interested in having the... The South Americans or the Central Americans involved, are they? Some countries have been involved. Chile, for example, um, which is uh, obviously naval ports on the Pacific, has, uh, has sent troops uh, and uh, warships in the past to uh, exercises like RIMPAC. And in recent times, it's been interesting because officially there's no named enemy in these exercises. It's not saying this is directed against China, which of course it is. A few exercises ago, China was invited, the People's Liberation Army was invited to send observers to this massive military exercise, partly as a gesture of détente, partly as a, um, a way of sending signals to the Chinese military about the capacity of the United States Navy and uh, the nature of its alliances with countries like Australia. What's really striking is that this year's RIMPAC exercises um, being held uh, near Hawaii, the Chinese have not been invited and the People's Liberation Army Navy has been formally refused participation in RIMPAC, whereas, um, you know, as I say, over the last decade, there's been attempts to do uh, joint military operations, joint military exercises with the Chinese as a sort of, uh, you know, fig leaf gesture to say, oh, we're not really doing this to contain China, to, to attack China. It's, it's just against ISIS's navy or something like this. And what was the reaction of China to being told, don't come? Well, the Chinese have been um, building their networks, as we've talked about on the program before, right across Eurasia, right across the Northern Pacific, and uh, I don't think the Chinese are particularly fussed. They've been doing diplomatically quite well out of the Trump negotiations with Korea. Kim Jong-un went to Beijing before he met with uh, uh, Donald Trump in Singapore, so the Chinese have been very carefully trying to manage the the negotiations about the future of the Korean Peninsula to their benefit. And I think that there's an awareness in Beijing that the uh, the tone is changing. We've seen that against Russia and we're seeing that against China where um, ANZUS allies are being more overt in their uh, attitude that China is a strategic enemy, a strategic competitor, rather than just a, another player within the uh, broader Asia-Pacific region and indeed the global economy. What about the islands in the China Sea, the Spratleys and all those islands there that are claimed by about four or five different countries and they say that China's building bases on the making islands and building bases there? I mean, China is certainly expanding its military capacity within the South China Sea where they're very concerned that the American Navy, which historically regarded the Pacific as an American lake, can push forward towards China for military attacks and particularly for any potential conflict over Taiwan, which is a huge area of strategic concern for China. China, of course, saying this is a one-China policy, that Taiwan is an integral part of China. And so the militarization of the islands by the Chinese uh, People's Liberation Army has been a part of this notion that the South China Sea should essentially be under strategic control and that's where you have the United States pressuring Australia to participate in what are called freedom of navigation exercises. They should uh, sail within the territorial waters, the 12 kilometres of these islands, to show that they are international waters rather than under Chinese sovereignty. 
you know, there's a certain hypocrisy in all this. You know, I, I always laugh when I hear the United States lecturing the Chinese about obeying, you know, the international rules, the uh, UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, which governs uh, the control of maritime space, because the United States has not ratified the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, just like it hasn't ratified a whole series of international conventions, everything from the International Criminal Court to the Convention Against Torture to a whole range of international rules. The United States also refuses to allow its power to be constrained in that way. But um, I'm a great believer in the, the law of the sea, and I think, you know, what we're seeing in, in the South China Sea is China as a major power asserting its presence against the interests of other smaller countries. And also you've got the militarisation of the, of the countries around that. You've got Guam and you've got Okinawa in Japan, you've got South Korea, Vietnam, Philippines all being militarised with bases so that they can you know, go out into the, and do all these exercises and can try and control it against China and Australia. In every period of major conflict, the United States has spread its bases network and then it's taken a long time for that bases network to retreat. I mean, going right back to 1898, uh, the war against Spain, which uh, uh, saw the expansion, really, of the first American naval networks and so you had the United States seize territory in the Philippines, obviously the uh, coup against uh, Queen Liliuokalani in Hawaii, uh, Guam, which was then a Spanish possession, Cuba, Puerto Rico. And so right back to the time of the 1898 Spanish War, uh, the Americans seized land which was used for military bases. And you have then established a whole series of military facilities which are maintained to this day, you know, more than 100 20 years later, 110 years later. So Guantanamo, which is on Cuba, on the island of Cuba, is U.S. territory, or so they claim. Uh, the Cubans obviously claim it as theirs. Um, and Guantanamo has been a U.S. naval base, staffed by U.S. Marines. Obviously the prison uh, for uh, Islamist uh, terrorists has been, been put there. Guam, major area of militarization where uh, APRA Harbor, deep water harbor in the Western Pacific, has been a major U.S. naval base going back for more than a century. Over a quarter, nearly a third of the land area of Guam is now taken up by U.S. military bases. And that's but, expanding? And that's expanding, particularly Anderson Air Force Base is expanding the Naval Air Station. Um, there's been a plan uh, going back for more than a decade to bring 8,000 Marines out of Okinawa, um, the Okinawan Islands, the Ryukus and so on, were militarised after the Second World War as the Americans advanced towards Japan. Uh, there's been a massive peace movement and popular mobilisation against the US bases in Okinawa. It's a very small island, relatively, and the noise, the cases of US sailors and soldiers raping people, uh, the accidents uh, and so on, the Okinawans have struggled to get the US Marines out of Okinawa. And the plan is to relocate originally 8,000, now they're talking about 5,000 Marines, plus all their families and dependents from Okinawa to Guam. And that will involve taking a whole lot more land in Guam, belongs to the indigenous Chamorro people, and building naval housing, building all the infrastructure and PXs and uh, supermarkets and everything else the Marines will need, uh, a significant pressure on Guam. Similarly, Hawaii, uh, there's a major you know, series of facilities in, in Hawaii, from the Pearl Harbor Naval Base to Schofield uh, Barracks, and Hawaii is the headquarters for the U.S. 7th Fleet, which commands uh, the Pacific and indeed now extends into the Indian Ocean, this notion of the Indo-Pacific, as the United States and Australia try and build uh, alliances with India uh, to establish the containment of China, not just from the uh, 
the east, but also from the west. Um, so this notion of the Indo-Pacific rather than Asia-Pacific has entered the jargon of uh, foreign affairs and uh, you see it in Australia's foreign affairs papers and so on where they now talk about the Indo-Pacific, which is basically getting India to line up against China. And then you go back to the Pacific and you've got South Korea and the bases there and the Jeju Island, what's happening there? There's once again been attempts to upgrade and expand some of the bases in Korea and a lot of resistance, popular resistance to Jeju and other places. You know, the bases, there's been um, 28,000, nearly 30,000 American forces in Korea. The numbers rise and fall depending on the, the particular period. And, uh, you know, a lot of resentment from democratic forces in Korea about the presence of the U.S. military. And so in the current situation, part of the pressure from uh, the negotiations about the future of the Korean Peninsula would be about the withdrawal of foreign forces, foreign bases. And that's part of the bigger picture, which the Americans don't want to particularly talk about. And so one of the features is this base network is very expensive. To run bases right across the world for the United States is a major problem. And every few decades, there's an attempt to restructure and realign the bases network. Under the Clinton administration, for example, they had a program called BRAC, the Bases Realignment and Closure Process. And the BRAC process was saying, look, after the Second World War, after the the Vietnam War, we established a network of military bases across the world, across Southeast Asia particularly and into East Asia, bloody expensive to maintain, can we, uh, you know, roll back some of the costs? And one of the problems is that there are advantages for host governments, not necessarily for host communities uh, from these bases, charge the Americans a vast amount of money, they get the spillover of militarisation and training for their own armed forces and so on. So some governments are are reluctant to see this closure, but um, it's a debate... And this is where Donald Trump's policies are really interesting. There's this tension between wanting to confront China as a strategic adversary versus the sort of isolationism that sometimes comes out in Trump's policy, which involves withdrawing from the alliance network that's been created going back decades. What about the base in the Northern Territory? How big is that? Is that part of the, they call it the Robinson Base, don't they? Yeah, look, there's a series of facilities in the Northern Territory, and that's grown up. I mean, one of the things we saw under the Abbott government was this push to develop the North, you know, and getting Gina Reinhart and all of uh, the other mates uh, vast sort of subsidies to build networks there. But there's also been, going back some time, the expansion of the military footprint, particularly in the Northern Territory. There's always been bases in uh, the north and in the centre of Australia, obviously Pine Gap is a major so-called joint facility between Australia and the United States that's involved in targeting drone strikes, it's involved in uh, communications monitoring and surveillance, it's involved in uh, nuclear weapons targeting and a whole range of purposes as part of the American warfighting capacity. But the expansion at Catherine, Robinson and at other facilities in the Northern Territory has seen US forces gain a foothold. There's a process where the United States is rotating Marines through the Northern Territory. Uh, one of the features of um, the successful people struggles in Okinawa and in Guam against the relocation of the bases from Okinawa to Guam and uh, some 8,000 Marines has been that they've cut down the number of uh, Marines uh, going into Guam to about 5,000 and the spillover is coming to Australia. 
they're supposedly not based here, they're simply rotating, they do six months on, six months off, or different periods on and off, um, but effectively there's a US Marine base. And just recently, a week or so ago, HMS Adelaide, our new landing helicopter, Dopschick, it's an amphibious assault ship that Australia has built. We have two, the Canberra and the Adelaide, that are there basically to invade places using military assault, has taken the Marines from Darwin on the Adelaide across the Pacific through Fiji to the RIMPAC military exercises. So there's a classic example about the integration of the base network and the military exercises where US Marines rotating through Darwin, have gone on an Australian warship to participate in military exercises in the Northern Pacific, um, really showing how we're tied in through the ANZUS Alliance to US for war fighting postures. This is Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. Joan Bartlett, and I'm speaking with journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. And there's a story about that, isn't there? Well, it's interesting. The media reported um, a week or so ago that a Chinese spy ship had come to Fiji to track HMAS Adelaide um, when it was passing through Suva, the main port in Fiji, on the way to, to Hawaii. The people who were fed that story missed the, the point that this ship, which is a satellite monitoring ship from the Chinese government, comes in and out of Suva all the time. I was in Fiji in April and the ship was docked there. It's the home port for fuel, for uh, food, for uh, rest and recreation for these Chinese sailors and it's been there for some time. So the media in Australia presented this, that this ship was tracking HMAS Adelaide. In fact, it was just coming into port as it does every couple of months Um, and it was just the coincidence of the Adelaide being there. I'm quite sure the Chinese were happy to spy on the Adelaide while they were there, but um, the notion that the the Chinese advancing and threatening through the Pacific is beaten up by the Australian media and we saw this recently with the the notion that China wanted to establish bases in in, uh, Vanuatu. And this is really striking, the effect of this propaganda, you know, the notion that you know, Australia is threatened by Chinese bases. Uh, and indeed, you read a lot of newspapers, it's as if it's a fact. Whereas the government of Vanuatu has formally denied this, uh, there's been no evidence that the so-called preliminary discussions have proceeded anywhere. Ralph Reganvanu, the foreign minister of Vanuatu, denounced the stories that were published in the Fairfax Press in Australia about Chinese plans for a base in Vanuatu, saying, hang on, we're non-aligned. We were the first country in the Pacific in 1983 to join the non-aligned movement. We don't support either alliance, the American Western Alliance, the Chinese Alliance, or any others, to have military bases. Um, Vanuatu is a non-aligned country and the first in the Pacific Islands to take up that status. Indeed, Reagan Vanu was at the non-aligned movement conference when the Fairfax story ran a series of front-page things alleging that China was trying to establish bases. And so what's really striking for Pacific Islanders is that, you know, we'll talk about the Chinese advance in the Pacific, ignores the fact that there is an existing network of military bases and military alliances dominated by the United States with extensive support from Australia across the region, you know, through training, through joint exercises, through arms purchases that uh, make compatible the uh, network, you know, all the technology that's involved in modern warfare, through missile purchases and so on, we're increasingly integrated into that regional network. That's that thing of Trump saying you've got to pay your way. Absolutely. There's a lot of pressure from the United States 
you know, it's, as I mentioned, the Clinton administration tried to realign and close down some of these bases because it's very expensive to do. And what Trump is saying is he wants the Allies to pay for the privilege of hosting US forces. He wants NATO allies, for example, to increase their defence spending to 2% of uh, GDP. And I think only about seven NATO countries at the moment, I'd have to go and check my figures, reach that 2% target. And our government has that policy to increase defence spending to 2%. And we've seen under Abbott and Turnbull, but started under Labor, the push to expand our military forces. We're buying submarines, $50 billion worth of submarines, from uh, a French design, the Barracuda. We've just announced that uh, BAE, the major British weapons manufacturer, is going to build the next generation of hunter frigates for the Royal Australian Navy. We've got the Pacific Patrol Boat Program, which is uh, providing patrol boats to Pacific Island countries. Um, These are big infrastructure projects. Obviously, South Australia and Christopher Pine are rubbing their hands at the the possibility of the corruption that we see in the arms industry coming to South Australian politics. You know, this is a notoriously corrupt industry, arms dealing. And, you know, the Turnbull government's expressed the notion that we want to be in the top ten arms exporters in the world. Now, to get into that sort of level involves massive corruption. You look at the scandals that have been countries like South Africa that had the same ambition to build up their capacity to um, you know, play on the big table with arms dealers and the sort of corruption that took over the South, South African polity, Trevor Manuel and Zuma and all sorts of corrupt leaders involved in the arms trade, what it's going to mean in Australia. And don't lecture me about, oh, that would never happen in Australia. Look at what happened with the Australian Wheat Board and the dealings with Saddam Hussein. Look at Securency, the Australian uh, currency, you know, the people who make the plastic notes, and the corruption that was involved in trying to get contracts in Vietnam. Don't tell me that that's not going to infect our body politic as we try and export armaments around the world, Bushmasters and other things that we make. You know, this is the rotten side of, of... of the militarisation, it not only is about inflicting military attacks against people overseas, it's also about the corruption that the arms industry brings into the body politic, the society. And, you know, Labour and Liberal governments are complicit in building up the arms trade without any analysis or critique of what it does to us as much as what it does to people at the receiving end. Can I take you back to the Indian Ocean for a moment? And we've got islands like Diego Garcia and those islands around there. What's happening there with um, militarisation? Similar things in the Indian Ocean. I mean, Diego Garcia is a particular case. In the Chagos Islands uh, has seen a horrific displacement of indigenous Chagosians, the people of the, the islands. Um, Diego Garcia is one of those islands, and people were relocated by the British to set up a military base uh, on Diego Garcia. Uh, people displaced um, to Mauritius and other places and have been struggling for decades to get back to their home islands uh, because of this displacement. Uh, the British essentially handed over Diego Garcia to the Americans. It's been incredibly militarised, major infrastructure, airstrip and so on there. And, of course, Diego Garcia was used for the rendition of Islamist uh, prisoners and so on. So Diego Garcia has been not really rendered off limits for most Chagosians. And it's a, uh, they've won court case after court case in Britain right up to the, the level of the High Court in Britain, saying that they have the right to return to their home islands, but they've been displaced. And that's a feature, as we've said, in Guam, in uh, Vieques, in Puerto Rico, with Cajo Alave, that indigenous communities find their homelands destroyed 
by uh, military exercises, by live fire ammunition, by the toxics that are widely used in military bases uh, um, that pollute the groundwater and the, uh, the natural ecosphere around these land areas and so on. It's a feature of this. The presence of, however, China in the region is also raising concerns in the Indian Ocean. There's a lot of concern amongst Western strategic analysts that China is looking for uh, opportunities to establish overseas military bases. There's currently a facility in Djibouti. Uh, there's a talk of uh, Gwadia, a major port in uh, Pakistan, being converted uh, for military purposes as well as civilian. Uh, this comes under China's what's called the Belt and Road, one belt, one road policy, which is a massive global infrastructure initiative by China to uh, provide loans to get Chinese corporations, private or state-run, involved in infrastructure, uh, railways, roads, ports, uh, right across the globe, but particularly through the stands, uh, through East Asia, through Southeast Asia, and uh, South Asia as well. And so, you know, the, there's a lot of concern in the Western powers about the capacity of China to invest and build partnerships with countries like Pakistan, Sri Lanka and others. They're looking to push back against this Chinese influence. And we've seen that on a small scale with the recent so-called military base in Vanuatu, but it's happening really on a much wider scale across our region. One country you haven't mentioned is Russia. Well, the Russians have got problems financially um, you know everyone talks about Russia as a major power and it certainly is in the sense that it's got a vast nuclear arsenal and it's got the veto rights on the, um, the UN Security Council and what we've seen under the Putin regime in recent years has been Russia strengthening its border in Eastern Europe through operations in the Ukraine uh, through the annexation of parts of the Crimean Peninsula and so on you know one of the things that happened after the Cold War after the collapse of the Soviet Union in the early 1990s was that the United States, talking about a new American century, really expanded into areas that historically they hadn't been able to during the Cold War period in the 1950s and the, the 20th century. So you had the area in the Middle East, which had been really off limits for American military forces, places like Syria and Iraq and, and other areas under the Arab regimes of Saddam and Assad and so on. You had the whole area of the stands, the southern Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, and so on. And Eastern Europe had been essentially areas where the US hadn't been able to operate through NATO, through other military alliances. And what you saw through the 1990s in the first decade of the 21st century has been American expansion into those areas, particularly with NATO expanding really right up to the border of the former Soviet Union, uh, moving into countries from Latvia and Estonia, Ukraine and so on, um, moving into Uzbekistan and Tajikistan and other places. Massive American military base built in Uzbekistan for some time. And, of course, the conflict and, and disasters we've seen in, uh, in the Middle East with the horrific wars, two of them, in Iraq and the devastation for ordinary Syrian people of the, the conflict that's being played out geopolitically in Syria with tens of thousands of deaths, hundreds of thousands, millions of refugees, and so on. So into the Middle East, into the stands, into Eastern Europe, the American forces surged forward in areas that they hadn't been able to. And what we've seen, not surprisingly, is push back. So Russia is pushing back the boundaries, 
geopolitically in Ukraine in the Crimea. China is militarising the South China Sea in the face of that American surge. And that's the sort of world we're living in at the moment where ordinary people who suffer the consequences of this militarisation, the diversion of funds to the military instead of social need in health and education and welfare, the corruption of society through arms dealing, through the toxic culture of military bases and so on, is played out on ordinary people around the world. And, you know, regimes in uh, the Middle East have seen incredible devastation through uh, the so-called democratic surge that George W. Bush promised, you know, so-called mission accomplished. And yet American troops are bogged down in Afghanistan. The, the conflict in Iraq has been going on and on and on with ISIS and other fascist movements uh, um, throughout the Middle East. Uh, democratic forces, such as parts of the Kurdish movement and so on, have been trying to find a place to advance social agendas within that complex geopolitics. But they're often, uh, you know, the Kurds, for example, having fought alongside the Americans against ISIS, have been thrown to the wolves uh, as Turkey's regime is uh, now able to move into Kurd- Kurdish areas. And uh, the Erdogan regime in Turkey is now being allowed off the leash, really, to crack down on the Kurdish movement once again. So for ordinary people, for the Arab Spring in the Middle East, for democratic forces in uh, Uzbekistan, uh, for, for Democrats in the uh, parts of Eastern Europe facing really ugly regimes in government, uh, this is a, a real problem. Uh, the, the geopolitics are pretty crude, and you see that with Donald Trump shaking hands with his best buddy, Kim Jong-un, little rocket man, you know, the two of them together, claiming that they can solve the problems of the Korean Peninsula. But what did the Korean Peninsula People of the Korean Peninsula think about that. They're not part of the conversation in the public sphere, and I think that's where you know we need to step forward to to keep raising these questions about who benefits from this militarization, from this geopolitical conflict. The militarization of the world. The militarization of our society as well, and you see it in small ways. Um, I just reading the paper a couple of days ago. Oh, the government's about to change the laws uh, to allow the military to operate in police operations following the Lint Cafe, uh, the debate about whether the New South Wales Police or the SAS should have gone in during the Lint Cafe hostage crisis. The law's about to be changed in Australia to um, allow uh, the Australian Defence Force, particularly the SAS and counter-terrorism units in the commandos and so on, uh, to be much more active in the domestic sphere. Um, so we see this incremental, not so incremental, changes in the law around national security. And there's bipartisan support, Labor and Liberal, for so-called national security without really interrogating what that means. And, you know, ironically, it's the same week that the government, having got its legislation through the parliament around national surveillance and espionage, has launched a court case against lawyer Bernard Collery and Witness Kay former ACES agent, Australian Security Intelligence Service, one of our overseas spies. He was the chief technical officer, Agent K, involved in the bugging operation where Australia bugged the cabinet room and the ministerial offices of the Timor government during oil negotiations, the negotiations to define the maritime boundary between Australia and Timor. Now, I'm sorry, Timor is not a major strategic threat to Australia. The Timorese army is not going to take over Australia, even though they are to our north, and I know gravity is the major threat to Australia, to northern Australia. This is a shameful, disgusting piece of the national security state advancing its agenda and willing to crack down on anyone who stands up in the way and says, what does this national security actually mean? It means that Australian intelligence officers bugged the cabinet room 
of a neighbouring government during crucial negotiations about oil and gas. So one of the poorest countries in the world could get its fair share of oil that was stolen by Australia over the heads of the Timorese people when we negotiated Gareth Evans clinking champagne glasses with Sahato as they signed a deal and others to sign a deal about carving up the oil in the waters between Australia and Timor. And under Alexander Downer, one of the great toffs of the Australian Liberal Party, signing a deal knowing the negotiating position on the other side because our spooks had bugged their cabinet office. And now the lawyer defending a member of ASIS who had double thoughts about whether this was moral or just or appropriate, these poor blokes are now being persecuted and taken before the court on the 25th of July. So the sort of culture of national security that justifies increasing the arms spending, doing deals with the French over joint logistics arrangements in New Caledonia, just as New Caledonia is moving towards a referendum on its independence, uh, these sorts of deals have implications for ordinary people on the ground and people need to be challenging this mantra about national security and say, hang on, whose security are we talking about? What security does it bring? What does it mean for human security when money is diverted towards this militarisation away from socially useful activities? And thanks once again to researcher and journalist Nick McClellan in the time here at 3CR is now 5.32. Coming up in a few moments... We'll be looking at the elections in Mexico. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say, it's okay, you are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419-8377. The much-anticipated elections in Mexico were held on Sunday with a completely revamped electoral process in the country's largest national and local elections. The left-centre candidate, Andreas Manuel López Obrador, and his coalition partners won convincingly. Early today, I spoke with Professor Emeritus Barry Carr, former director of the Institute for Latin American Studies at La Trobe University, researcher, author and academic. And I asked Barry first why he won. That's not an easy question to answer because we're still absorbing the enormity of the victory uh, yesterday of a party called Morena, which didn't exist about three or four years ago, uh, and whose leader, Andres Manuel López Obrador, Probably even he never expected the scale of this victory. Why the victory? I think there's one word, it's a word in Spanish, but I'll translate it. It's, the word is artazgo, which means the state of being absolutely fed up and can't bear it anymore. There's no real good English translation. I think the victory is because a very large percentage of Mexicans simply 
are not prepared anymore to accept and to tolerate such phenomenon as uh, unbelievable impunity of politicians and business people when accused of crimes, extraordinarily high levels of corruption, and especially uh, a situation of uh, violence in so many parts of the country, violence of a failed war on drugs, in which in the last, since 2006 over 200,000 people have been killed and about 30,000 people are still missing with no information, no resolution, no investigation of these things. So if you put all those things together plus a, a, a sluggish economy which is the second weakest economy in, in Latin America and uh, an deeply unpopular president of the ruling party, the PRI, which has been kind of almost wiped out in these elections. All those things together, plus a very, very charismatic sort of leader in AMLO, as he's known, which is putting his initials together. Uh, I think that those are the reasons why we're seeing this extraordinary victory. But why, Barry, has it got to that stage of um, people being absolutely fed up? Why haven't they been able to control these things that you have just talked about? Well, that's a 64,000 peso question. Corruption is not peculiar to Mexico. I mean, political corruption, uh, economic corruption are widespread. I think the answer in, in, in Mexico is that corruption has been around for so long that it's corrupted all the natural organs of government and of the state and of the legal system that would normally put a, if not put a stop to corruption, at least control its, 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 its incredibly high levels. Uh, so that's one reason. And the second is that um, the party that is currently in power, which will kind of move out of power in December uh, of this year to give way to the newly elected president. It's been in power uh, or in the position of power since 1929. Over those, the, what was it, 90 or so years, been able to insinuate itself at all levels of governance in Mexico, not just federal level, but state level, municipal level, and been able to more or less guarantee a state of complete impunity. So I think Mexicans have become passive over the years, or at least were passive, in accepting this situation and saying, well, it's always been like that. We can't do anything about it. So part of the answer is that Mexicans have always been opposed to these things, but they haven't had a, they haven't had a, uh, a vehicle in which they, can, uh, which they could express their, uh, their anger and in which they could also express their hopes for a better and more just Mexico. Was that long drug war out of the control of the Mexican government? Well, I think so. Uh, it was a failed policy from the very, very beginning. Um, uh, it was a policy which involved uh, bringing the army into to the war, which and armies are not really uh, trained. Soldiers are not trained for doing domestic policing. It's out of control because the sheer uh, amount of money involved in the drug trade is, so, is, is such that... Uh, it corrupts virtually everything it touches, and so uh, the mechanisms which would normally be able to control high levels of crime were sort of not functioning, and the methods used to uh, to fight the drug war, which was to pour huge amounts of money and arms, also failed because what happens when you uh, declare war on the drug trade uh, is that it's a bit like pushing on a string. You get nowhere. Uh, all you do is you fragment existing cartels and coalitions. You get rid of their heads and 
boast about it in the press. But when you get rid of one or two of the, the leaders, all that then happens is that the competitors of those leaders of the cartels fill the empty space. So you actually get a fragmentation of the drug trade, which is what has been happening, which makes things e- even worse. And is it true that the drugs aren't actually manufactured in Mexico, but they're a, more a conduit? Well, Mexico's it's both both of those things are correct. I mean, Mexico was and has that is a conduit for some drugs that come from Colombia and from Peru, from the Andean countries. But also, uh, Mexico also is a place where opium, for example, which produces heroin, is produced. I mean, in the northwestern part of Mexico, uh, opium has been a major crop really for since the 1920s and 1930s. So it's a combination, I, uh, I think, of Mexico being a conduit because of its large border with the United States, which is the largest consumer of all these drugs. But it's also a country with a long tradition of, uh, of drug production on a very, very small scale, I have to say, and really with a, with a small, very small domestic market. And NAFTA? NAFTA, well, that, of course, is a treaty which uh, has a lot of enemies on all sides, both on the right and on the left. Nobody is really very happy with the way in which NAFTA has played, has played out since it was signed in 1994. I think the current stalled negotiations between Canada, Mexico, and the United States certainly uh, is something that was in the minds of Mexican voters. I think Mexicans appreciate some aspects of NAFTA, at the same time realize that NAFTA has caused enormous harm, particularly in the countryside where Mexico now actually imports most of its food, which is a bizarre phenomenon because of highly subsidized grain uh, production in the United States. But all all sides of politics in Mexico were worried and concerned about NAFTA, and all sides of politics, not just the victorious Lopez Obrador, were deeply angered by President Trump's sort of continuous and insulting remarks directed towards Mexico. So whether we'll see a reformed NAFTA that addresses the needs of, of each of those three countries, I'm not too sure. I'm actually rather pessimistic about that. And what's happened to all the people in the rural areas who, who used to produce the the food well, that's a very, very good question. Of course, uh, some of them are still there and their living conditions have deteriorated terribly. Others have moved to the big cities in Mexico or in some cases they've moved to the United States. I mean, there is a, although the, the movement of Mexicans both documented and undocumented in the United States is currently falling. I mean, the numbers are nowhere near as great as they were 5, 10, 15 years ago. Nevertheless, Mexico has historically been an exporter of its population to the United States, and most Mexicans who go to the U.S. don't go because they want to buy a 150-channel TV set. They go because of poverty. They go because there's an opportunity of finding work in the United States, even if that work is very, very poorly remunerated. And that's one of the things that President López Obrador has vowed to stop. He's made the point that it's a a disgrace that Mexico has for so long accepted the fact that it has to export millions and millions of its people to neighbouring countries. Talk a bit more about violence. The figures are about 130 candidates who were killed during the electioneering over the last whatever months. But that violence is not just the candidates, it's the, the ordinary people who are being killed. Well, those, those were the candidates, of course, which is already a very, very serious um, event that... Uh that standing for political office. It was on all sides of the political spectrum. doesn't guarantee your security. But the violence is just uh, extraordinary in Mexico. It's not 
violence felt in every aspect of everyday life everywhere in the country. There are some regions which are particularly violent. They used to be on the northern border, you know, the border of Mexico and the United States, with cities like Ciudad Juarez and Tijuana being sort of absolutely uh, horrific. But now the violence has spread to other areas of the country. Some of the coastal areas, Acapulco, for example, which of course is a very famous tourism resort, is now the most violent city in, in Mexico and one of the most violent cities in the whole of Latin America. There are other areas of Western Mexico, the states of Michoacan and Jalisco, are in some areas de facto controlled by drug cartels or uh, drug groups. It's not just the, the violence and the fact that probably, although we don't know for sure because there's never any investigation, although uh, the, most of the victims probably are competing members of competing gangs in the, in, in the drug trade, it's the fact that there's never any investigation. I mean, we don't really know exactly how the violence spreads and who it affects because of the 230,000 people killed since 2006, which is when the drug war was really ramped up, only about 1% of those cases has been investigated. So Mexicans, I think, are not only frightened, but they also are terrified uh, and angered by the impunity, not only of the people who actually have been meeting out the violence, but the impunity of the politicians who have been bribed by the drug groups uh, and of the judges and the legal system, which has also been tremendously corrupted. And when you think of the, the use of the police and the military to try and cope with this, these drugs, that money isn't going into the communities that need it most. No, it's not. It's, it's not. it's certainly not doing that. It's actually also making the military, it is creating uh, situations in the military where the violation of human rights has been increasing. I mean, the, the police uh, have a terrible reputation in Mexico, but the army in some ways until recently was above all that. Uh, had a certain amount of legitimacy in the eyes of the population. But once the decision was made to actually militarize the war against drugs, then that simply opened up the, the military, the army uh, in particular, to corruption. And uh, uh, it's actually created more enemies than existed in the first place. So the war on drugs has been a disaster all around. And there's got to be some way of reducing the scale of the drug trade without at the same time creating uh, situation of uh, a deteriorating situation for, for human rights in the country. And what has AMLO talked about that? How he's going well, to he did that? during the election campaign make a rather controversial statement saying that um, not only was the war on drugs a failure, but that there had to be some way in which the small-scale use and consumption and trafficking of drugs could be uh, could be resolved without putting people in jail or killing them. Of course, this was seized on by uh, by some of his enemies for saying, "Well, you want to try and legalize the drug trade." I think, in fact, now not only in Mexico but in the rest of Latin America, there is a growing majority feeling that. Uh, Drugs such as marijuana, for example, they need to be uh, need to trade in the trade, not so much the trade, but the use of some of these drugs needs to be legalised as a way of reducing the extraordinary uh, pressure on, on on jails and on the legal system. Is he likely so, to get that through? It will be 
a difficult challenge to get through a lot of things, actually, in Mexico. We, it's still very, very early days, and Mr. López Obrador won't actually be president until December in the Mexican constitutional system. You have elections now in July, but it takes six months for you to actually enter, enter the presidential palace, so to speak. There are some problems, I think, in that Mr. and the, the party that has won power, Morena is a coalition. It's a coalition of a centre-left party, which is Morena. But uh, Lopez Obrador did sign an alliance with some other forces in order to increase his, I suppose, his uh, political uh, appeal, which um, are a bit worrying. There's a, a evangelical political party known as Encuentro Social, or PES, which uh, jumped onto the AMLO Morena bandwagon. And that's this party, this evangelical party, uh, is extremely conservative on some issues, particularly so-called moral issues like abortion and same-sex marriage. So it's going to be a tempestuous ride, I think, in Congress, simply because Morena has been such a success in in recent years that... uh, People in other political parties, uh, seeing the writing on the wall, have jumped ship and have tried to uh, to join Morena. And the, the party has not, I think, done sufficient vetting to make sure that it's not being corrupted by forces against which it's been fighting for so many years. Is there any understanding of why he chose that party as his partner? The argument, I suppose, is that uh, Lopez Obrador and Morena wanted to build a as broad a coalition as, and, and popular coalition as possible and one way of doing that is to try and tap the market where you've got people who are strong religious believers I mean, Encuentro Social is a part evangelical party of both Protestant evangelicals and that's a growing sector in Mexico and in other parts of Latin America but there are also considerable Catholics there Mexico is a Catholic country where Catholicism has deep roots and I suppose the argument was, well, let's see if we can tap a significant body of uh, votes which would normally go to conservative parties. And it's been successful because uh, it partly explains the enormous majority that the opposition has won now. But uh, it could be uh, a stone round the, the neck of, of, of López Obrador. It's impossible at this stage to know exactly how things will pan out in Congress. Talk about the indigenous peoples across Mexico who refrained from voting and some actually banned the electoral process in their territories. Well, the indigenous issues really important in Mexico. There was an attempt by an indigenous woman, Marichui, to actually get, a, uh, get up on ballot box, but she failed because of inability to raise the, the, num- the, the number of votes required to be formally registered. And uh, the echoes of the Zapatista liberation movement in southern Mexico are still present. I mean, it's a movement that no longer has the, uh, the, the thrust and the presence that it had back in the, ni- in the ni- 90s and in the early years of this new century. There are indigenous people and there are people on the left who, whose attitude towards Morena and, uh, and AMLO, López Obrador, is not one of great enthusiasm. I mean, their argument is that AMLO is too moderate, that he's prepared to do deals with uh, individuals who are rather suspect and that he doesn't, he's not radical enough to engage with issues such as improving the lot of, um, of the rural poor and of indigenous people. And that explains why in some areas in, indigenous folks in Mexico uh, either 
abstained from the election campaign, didn't vote at all, or even tried to prevent uh, the arrival of, of, of campaigners from political parties as they try to enter their communities and villages. There'll be great expectation, I believe, by the grassroots and social movements for his um, win. Well, I think everywhere now, I'm just, these last 24 hours have been hours where I couldn't drag myself away from my uh, computer and from my smartphone. I, just following the, the, tweet, the tweets and the, uh, and the Facebook discussion, it's abundantly clear there's just extraordinary excitement in Mexico, not just because of the victory of Moreno, but because of the scale of the victory, the presidential level. If you look at the map of Mexico uh, and look at the presidential vote, because these were elections in which there were also elections for... Um, for state governors, but just the presidential map, it's a map entirely that's entirely red. There's only one little blue blob in the middle where uh, an opposition, when a party other than AMLO, uh, the Morena, actually won. So they have a, appears to have a majority uh, in both houses of, of Congress and now have actually, actually control most municipal governments. So that excites people, both uh, in political parties as well as people who are active in in social movements, uh, there's a lot of expectation, uh, a lot of, uh, uh, of hope, I think, is being expressed. All the things you would expect to, to see in the immediate aftermath of an election. But there are also people saying, congratulations, AMLO, but please don't fail us this time, which is a, a reminder of the fact that excitement and hope can sometimes be followed immediately, almost immediately, by despair and disappointment. What does this mean for the PRI party? It's a terrible setback for the PRI. It is a party which in one form or other has gone through name changes over time, uh, has been in power since 1929. Uh, it's lost even in its most, in the areas of its greatest strength, a state just outside of Mexico City called the State of Mexico was the heartland of the PRI. And even there, uh, uh, Morena has, uh, has been victorious. I think that um, it will be licking its chop, licking its wounds, but the scale of the victory of Morena is such that I'm sure that uh, the new party in power, the new government, will be able to begin to untangle and disassemble the mechanisms which uh, go reach right down into small villages and small communities, the corrupt clientelistic uh, mechanisms which have enabled the PRI to hold itself in power, keep itself in power now for so many, so many years. So it's a, an enormous humiliation for a party which has not only dominated in Mexico, but even when it has lost presidential elections, and it did do so uh, in 2000 and uh, 2006, uh, was still able to maintain a degree of power at the regional, local, municipal and state level. All of that seems to be uh, been thrown out of the window. So a lot of anger, a lot of frustration, I think a lot of disappointment on the part of the PRI. I'd imagine that the right and the far right that control the US are not too happy about this decision? Well, uh, of course, President Trump has sent a, a warm uh, a letter of, uh, of welcome and congratulations, which I suppose governments do. Yes, I think that the coverage of the, of the last six months, the campaign in the United States has been extremely poor. I mean, AMLO and Morena are simply dismissed as populists, which is the kind of new useless word expression that you hear all the time, which simply has no meaning at all. It simply means, I don't know, I don't like you. 
So uh, AMLO has been labelled as a populist, a kind of even he's been compared with Trump, which is a complete nonsense if you actually compare their policies and the way in which they've emerged. There's going to be a lot of, I think, of uh, pressure coming from the United States or Mexico, and I think we should be keeping our eye on what happens to the economic policy of the new government, because Mexico is does have a border with the United States. It's a member of, of NAFTA. Its economy is very dependent upon the United States, both for exports as well as for imports. And the U.S. will be able, I'm sure, to pile pressure on the economic team of uh, President López Obrador. And his, his economic team, while I think less corrupt and uh, more trustworthy than the outgoing economic team, is still made up essentially of putting those between, you know, inverted commas, sensible business-oriented folks. So I don't think we should uh, assume that this is a victory of the left in the old-fashioned sense of the term. President López Obrador and Morena are not, a, are not left-wing forces. They are maybe centre-left would be the best, the best term to describe that. But econo- in things economic, um, I think we shouldn't expect too dramatic a set of changes. Despite all that, Barry, I'm quite sure that you wish you were there. Oh, look, uh, I, the last 36 hours, I almost was about to uh, cash out some savings and head off to the airport. Uh, it's tremendously frustrating not being there. I have actually been in Mexico at an election time in 2006. I was an international observer there in an election, which was really won by López Obrador, by the way. Uh, it was an incredible fraud during that election. But, yes, it would be great to have been there and to have marched into the, the main square, the Plaza of the Constitution or the Zocalo, where people were late on uh, on Sunday evening uh, Mexico City time and early Monday. Apparently, you could, barely, you could barely make it into the central square. So lots and lots of rejoicing. People falling to the ground and kissing the earth. I mean, all the kinds of things you, you would expect to, to see in a country where people had more or less given up hope uh, in politics. Thanks so much, Barry. Pleasure. Ciao. A very happy Professor Emeritus James. No, of course it's not James. I'm so used to saying James Petrus after Emeritus Professor. That's Emeritus Professor Barry Carr from La Trobe University. And as I said, a very happy person since Sunday's election results. That's all for me for today. I will be back next Tuesday at 4. But stay tuned in a couple of minutes for done by law and that's it bye for now from every corner of the world they came from all around when in 1851 they struck gold upon the ground every voyage was a long one months upon the stormy sea some to seek their fortune others escaping slavery what they found on the gold fields was ruled by brutish thugs discrimination and taxation mixed with swinging billy clubs the gold was getting scarcer and cops were getting worse the diggers burned their licenses and vowed to end this curse they swore an oath beneath the southern cross they'd stand together and break the license laws From twenty different nations they gathered here as one In Ballarat beneath the southern sun
ground tried to divide them, giving preference to some. The diggers wouldn't have it. They said it's all of us or none. They built a stockade while the redcoats massed nearby, and they heard the miners shouting, "We're ready now to die." The rebel miners waited for whatever lay in store, and on one December morning in 1854, the redcoats attacked the camp. Dozens there would fall. Amongst these brave gold diggers who'd risen to the call, they swore an oath beneath the Southern Cross. They'd stand together and break the license laws. From twenty different nations, they gathered here as one in Ballarat beneath the Southern Sun. Things go their way, but when fifteen thousand miners rallied a month later on the day, the crown conceded everything, all of their demands. They'd won an end to license fees, the right to vote and land. So here's to Joe and Charlie, Waller and the rest. They drew the battle lines and put crown rule to the test. The diggers may have lost the battle, but they quickly won the day. And those shots fired in Victoria were heard ten thousand miles away. They swore an oath beneath the Southern Cross. They'd stand together and break the license laws. From twenty different nations, they gathered here as one in Ballarat beneath the Southern Sun. They swore an oath beneath the Southern Cross. They'd stand together and break the license laws.